I want to start with a question and just ask you, have you ever had a moment with the Lord? And maybe it was a moment, maybe it was a day, maybe it was a week, a month, a longer season. And looking back to you, you might describe that as a crisis of faith. Maybe a moment where you said, I don't know if I can keep going on in this journey with the Lord. Or maybe I don't know if I want to. I don't know if I want to. Some of you know uh, the name A.B. Simpson. A.B. Simpson was the founder of the Christian and Missionary Alliance movement. And he writes quite a bit on this topic, these crisis of faith moments. And he does so because he often struggled with severe bouts of depression. Some of you can relate to that. Let me read you what he wrote about a time when he was in high school in a prolonged bout with depression. Uh, Some speculate it may have lasted up to 10 months. Here's what he wrote. He said, after retiring one night, suddenly a star appeared to blaze before my eyes. And as I gazed, my nerves gave way. I sprang from my bed, trembling and almost fainting with a sense of impending death. He says, and then a and then fell into congestive chill, a congestive chill of great violence that lasted all night and almost took my life. A physician told me that I must not look at a book for a whole year, for my nervous system had collapsed, and I was in the greatest danger. There followed a period of mental and physical agony which no language can describe. I was possessed with the idea that at a certain hour I was to die, and every day as the hour drawn near... I became prostrated with dreadful nervousness, watching in agonizing suspense until the hour passed, wondering that I was still alive. So the the bout with depression was so severe that he experienced uh, psychosis where his uh, detachment from reality began. And he's literally looking at the clock, believing his pending death is near. And as each minute clicks off the clock. Uh, Some sense of relief that he was still alive and despair that maybe it would be the next minute that he would lose his life. And so uh, one of the interesting things is for A.B. Simpson, it was a theological uh, point of clarity that got him out of this particular season of depression. And for him, it was the great awareness that Jesus Christ was his savior and that what that meant was that he could have security, confidence that he knew where he would go when he would die and that he knew who was with him in this life. And so he would write later much about Christ as savior and he's talking about savior over salvation, savior over sins, but he's also talking about the power of Christ to save, not just for eternity, but also to save us from the things that so crippled his life uh, from his depression and so forth. And so as we get into Daniel chapter 10 and 11, we find Daniel in a state like this. The first three verses of Daniel 10 say that Daniel for three weeks didn't eat, uh, didn't drink, did not participate in any of the festivities of a festival time, that he stayed in his room, he pulled away from everyone. Uh, We find Daniel in this state of despair in the first three verses of chapter 10. And isn't it nice that the Bible includes these stories and it's not just all rosy so that we think our lives are the ones that are broken and everyone in the Bible's life, everything was great. But the Bible includes all this because it's real life, isn't it? It's real life. And so 
this is the spot that Daniel finds himself in. And many uh, people who have studied the book of Daniel believe that the Lord has given him a vision, an understanding of what is to come for the Jewish people. And Daniel has seen the future and realizes that even though the people of Israel have been sent back to Israel, sent back to Jerusalem to rebuild the walls, to rebuild the temple, that even after a hundred years, the temple and the walls are going to still be in shambles. That God's people will be opposed and they will get scared. God has opened the door for them to rebuild and they will be scared of those who stand in their way. They will be intimidated. They will see their circumstances being bigger than their God and they will quit. And Daniel is heartbroken. He's crushed. You know, maybe thinking, what was all of this even for? And so it's at this point that an angel comes to Daniel. Let's pick it up in chapter 10. If you have your Bibles, uh, I'm going to read verses 11 through 14 of chapter 10. The text has basically said Daniel is in this point of despair Daniel has this vision. We think that he might have actually seen Jesus because he's trembling on the ground, almost uh, fainting, and an angel comes to tenderly uh, tend to him, attentive in his moment. And we just see that the Lord has heard his cry. The Lord knows his pain. The Lord is close in Daniel's uh, darkness. Uh, Let's just take a snapshot of their conversation, verses 11 through 14. Uh, An angel, likely Gabriel, ministering to Daniel. Daniel writing, and he said to me, talking about the angel, O Daniel, man greatly loved, understand the words that I speak to you and stand upright, for now I have been sent to you. He says, and when he had spoken the word to me, I stood up trembling. Then he said, fear not, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your heart to understand and humbled yourself before your God, your words have been heard. There it is. Your words have been heard. God has heard his cry. He says, and I have come because of your word. And then verse 13, the prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days, but Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, for I was left there with the kings of Persia and came to make you understand what is to happen to your people in the latter days, for the vision is for days yet to come. So the Lord has heard Daniel's cry. The Lord sends an angel to tend to Daniel, and the angel says he has been restrained or delayed for 21 days by the prince of Persia. That sounds strange. It is strange. Uh, How is an angel delayed for 21 days? And so we understand the prince of Persia to be a a follower of the enemy, to be a demon. And what's even more interesting is that this demon seems to have a regionalized assignment over the nation of Persia, the Medes and the Persians. And so if you just pause for a second and as we consider what's happening in the Medes and the Persians uh, under their rule at this point, uh, King Cyrus is, is... is or has already sent the Jews back to Palestine. God's repositioning his people after exile to once again be his people, to once again worship in the temple, to once again establish a kingly line from which the Messiah would come. And this prince of Persia is signed with deterring everything that God wants to do. What else happens under the Medes and the Persians? Remember Ezra and Nehemiah and those rebuilding efforts that are 
delayed and are opposed by people in the land. Uh, some of you are familiar with the book of Esther. Remember what happens in Esther, uh, Esther 3. This is under the same rule uh, when God's queen, Esther, has been put in a position of royalty. And you remember Haman wants to exterminate the Jews. It says this. Letters were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with instruction to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all the Jews, young and old, women and children, in one day, the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. A lot is happening against God's people during this period of history. And we just get a a glimpse of that what looks like a delay to Daniel's request of the Lord is not a delay, it's not a denial uh, from God. Uh, There's a spiritual battle going on that Daniel can't see. Does this sound familiar? Maybe like Ephesians 6, uh, where Paul says, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against against the cosmic powers, over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Does it sound familiar? Uh, I think it's significant because I believe for many of us, if we're honest with ourselves, when we have conflict with another person, we see it as a function of our sin, their sin, our personality, their personality, our baggage, their baggage. Maybe we don't just like each other. Maybe we root for different sports teams. Maybe we vote different. It's just a function of our differences. We fail to consider that there could be something spiritual going on. We battle with physical health. We battle with financial health. And we believe it's purely about our bodies breaking down or purely about uh, poor financial choices or the stock market or the housing prices or just bad luck. Fail to consider that there could be a spiritual component in any way, shape, or form. And what we see here is that there's so much going on in and around Daniel's life that Daniel doesn't see and we just get a small glimpse of this angelic battle happening that delays gabriel coming to daniel if you're someone here who's trying to commit your marriage to the lord if you're someone here who's trying to point your children or your grandchildren to the lord do you know and do you expect that there is a spiritual battle going on to oppose every effort of yours to have unity in your home, to commit your family to the Lord and to walk daily according to his law. That there's a spiritual battle going on to oppose every effort of yours to walk faithfully according to his law. So how do we prepare? Because that's bad news, you know. Uh, If Gabriel's delayed, what chance do we have? Some of you know that Paul wrote more on this uh, in Ephesians 6. Uh, Verse 12 says, what I just read, and then verse 13 says, Therefore take up the whole armor of God that you might be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. We see that stand firm language again. Uh, Paul says, you can't stand firm on your own. I can't stand firm on my own. We need spiritual weapons. We need spiritual weapons for a spiritual battle. Uh, Paul lists the belt of truth. Right? It binds us to reality. Uh, binds us to who we are in Christ. Um, you know, if you don't wear your belt, you're in trouble. And I think of a uh, college student rolling out of bed to go to a 7 a.m. class, disheveled and dull, you know, not dressed for class, not ready for the day. Right? When we're not bound with truth, we're not ready for what the day presents. 
Paul talks about having your feet prepared with shoes of the gospel of peace. Uh, it's interesting. Some of you operate heavy equipment. You wouldn't turn on a chainsaw and go cut down a tree or, or do logs wearing flip-flops or not having shoes on, right? You wouldn't go run a marathon uh, in flip-flops or, or barefoot. But some of us, many of us, go into this spiritual battle daily uh, with bare feet without the gospel of peace. And we know because we don't feel the peace of the Lord in our hearts. He mentions the shield of salvation, the helmet, the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation uh, that extinguish the arrows of the enemy, that extinguish the arrows of the enemy. Uh, I guess just in a nutshell, I'd say if we invest minimally in faith to cultivate these weapons, to sharpen those instruments, to be prepared to use them. If we invest minimally to do that, we should expect a maximum number of the enemy's attacks to hit their mark. So this is where Daniel finds himself in the midst of this spiritual battle. So much going on that he can't see. So much going on that he can't. He's in despair. The angel comes and tends to him. And the angel is going to give Daniel chapter 11. The angel's comforting words are Daniel chapter 11. The angel's encouragement, Daniel chapter 11. Some things we're going to see from chapter 11. One, we're going to see that God is the God of the really big picture. God is the God of the big picture, but also the small details. The big picture and the small details. We're going to see that God is the God of all that is seen, all that Daniel can see and all that he can't. All that we can see, which is such a small percentage of what is, and all that we can't. We're going to see that God's part to play is huge. Daniel's part to play is small. We're going to see that ultimately, it's engagement with God, his power and his character and his purposes that's going to rescue Daniel from his circumstantial despair. God's eternal power and purposes, engagement with him and his mission is what's going to rescue Daniel from his circumstantial despair despair. Uh, if you have your Bibles, chapter 11, this is kind of where the text gets interesting. If you're a history buff, this might be the best chapter in the Bible for you. If you skipped history class and are glad you did so, uh, I warned you, um, just loaded with prophecy. Uh, this is about 535 BC. Uh, we estimate that there's about 135 already fulfilled prophecies just in this chapter. So if you're here today and you're someone who says, I don't know that I believe that this is the revealed and preserved word of God, I would invite you to read through chapter 11, open up a history book or a dozen, uh, and compare the two. I think you'll be amazed at what you read. If you're here today and you're in a spot and you're saying, I don't know if the Lord sees the details of my life, Consider some of the details that we're going to get into, some of the details that pertain to wicked kings and nations, and consider how much more might he be engaged with the details in the lives of his sons and his daughters. If you're here today and you're wondering, does God have any power in my life today, any power over my past, any power for the future uh, in light of what I see happening around me, I would say consider what we're going to read in Daniel chapter 11 and his power to move, to bring up, to bring down kings and kingdoms, world powers. Daniel chapter 11, let's read the first 
Let's just read verse 2 together. We'll kind of go slowly uh, through this. Uh, Verses 1 and 2 speak to the Persian Empire, which uh, is going to run from the 540s or so uh, for about 200 years. Uh, Verses 3 through 4 are going to talk about Alexander the Great, who comes on the scene about 336. Uh, Then the next 15 verses, uh, 5 through 20, are going to talk about the generals that ruled after Alexander, so that's Greek history. Verses 21 through 35 uh, focus in on the who's listed as a contemptible person. This is Antiochus Epiphanes, Antiochus IV. We've talked about him before, but he's someone who foreshadows the Antichrist, and then the text ends, verses 35 or so, 36 through 45, uh, with the Antichrist. And so this is meant to encourage Daniel to help him see God is the God of the big picture, the small details, what is seen, what is unseen. God's part is big. Daniel part, Daniel's part is small. In Daniel's circumstantial despair, recognize, be aware that God's eternal purposes, God's kingdom is advancing. God is on the throne no matter who is the king. Verse 2 says this, uh, talking again about the Persian Empire. And now I will show you the truth. Angel talking to Daniel, behold, three more kings shall arise in Persia, and a fourth shall be richer than all of them. And when he has become strong through his riches, he shall stir up all against the kingdom of Greece. And so if you had your history book out and you were comparing notes, you would read that there are three more kings that will rise up in Persia. Their names are Cambyses, Smyrnus, and Darius I. The fourth, who is going to be richer than all of those, his name is Xerxes, and we see his wealth, we see his power, because history records that he marches 2.6 million soldiers against the Greeks towards the end of his time. And so we we see history just lay right over the top of the biblical account with extraordinary detail to the number of kings and even to the proportional power uh, that the Lord gives them to wield. Let's read verses 3 and 4 as it moves in to the Greek empire, Alexander the Great. Verse 3 says, Then a mighty king shall rise. This is after Xerxes, after the Medes and the Persians. Then a mighty king shall arise who shall rule with great dominion and do as he wills. As soon as he has arisen, his kingdom shall be broken and divided toward the four winds of heaven, but not to his posterity, not to his kids, nor according to his authority with which he ruled. He's not even going to get a say in it. For his kingdom shall be plucked up and it shall go to others beside these. And so we've read a little bit uh, in a few chapters ago about Alexander the Great and that he comes on the scene really quickly and in a matter of like 10 years conquers most of the known world and then dies suddenly, right? We know that he had at least two boys, both of whom were murdered after his death. So he doesn't get to pick who's next. He doesn't get to see one of his sons step onto the throne. His kingdom is split four ways between four generals. And again, we see incredible precision when it comes to what the Lord has uh, described, what's being given to Daniel here at about 535 B.C., coming to fulfillment more than 200 200 years later through the life of Alexander the Great. Verses 5 through 20 record this back and forth thing between Alexander's four generals 
but mostly just between two. The Ptolemaic dynasty, which is down in Egypt, and the Seleucid dynasty, which is Syria and is of the north. Kind of a north versus south sort of a thing. Those are the two that rise up of the four to have the most power. Listen to what verses 17, 18, and 19 say about this back and forth between the north and the south. Verse 17, talking about the ruler of the north, who was also named Antiochus. He shall set his face to come with the strength of his whole kingdom, and he shall bring terms of an agreement, and he shall perform them. He shall give the daughter of women to destroy the kingdom, but it shall not stand or be to his advantage. Afterward, he shall turn his face to the coastlands and shall capture many of them, but a commander shall put an end to this insolence. Indeed, he shall turn his insolence back on him. Then he shall return his face back towards the fortress of his own land, but he shall stumble and fall and shall not be found. It says, then he shall set his face to come with the strength of his own whole kingdom. Uh, That's the north coming against the south. It says he will give a daughter to make a peace treaty. This is Cleopatra. Pretty significant things uh, happening here. This is Antiochus III in Syria in the north and Ptolemy V down in Egypt. And Antiochus III gives Cleopatra to Ptolemy V thinking that she will turn his heart and he will have power in Egypt and he will expand his rule and expand his strength. And instead, she turns her back on her father and she supports her husband. And the text says it doesn't work out. It doesn't go well. It says he does not succeed. And then it says he turns his face to the coastlands. History records that he goes up the coast, ravaging the coast in anger, Uh, And that he's met with a force greater than his. And like a bully that gets bullied, like a bully that meets someone bigger and stronger, he's forced to tuck his tail and run home. And he's forced to pay tribute, uh, give up land, and essentially walk away in shame. And so what he does is he turns his, it says his face towards his own fortress. He's actually going to go back to a city that he has power over. He's going to sack the temple of Zeus to take money to pay tribute and history records that his own people object and they kill him and verse 19 says he shall turn his face back towards the fortress of his own land as he goes back to sack the temple but he shall stumble and fall and shall not be found his own people will cause him to stumble and to fall and to not be found and so it's just amazing that as we see these wicked nations rising and falling god seems to just be allowing or permitting them to have power for a period of time to accomplish whatever he wants but we see that nothing happens outside of his power verse 21 through 35 focus in on antiochus epiphanes and certainly without a doubt he is one of the characters in history and described in scripture that is most contemptible Uh, i'll read verses 21 and then we'll just kind of jump around a little bit here it says in his place after antiochus has died in his place shall arise a contemptible person to whom royal majesty has not been given he shall come in without warning and obtain the kingdom by flatteries Uh, antiochus the fourth who calls himself antiochus epiphanes or antiochus god manifest should not have been king he was the younger brother to the ruler 
the person who should have been king was sitting in a Roman jail, and Antiochus Epiphanes goes to the royals of the land and promises them great power and great wealth if they will make him king. And so he seizes his moment. He seizes his sudden moment, as the text says, and makes himself king. Uh, Verse 29 and 30 record a little bit more, saying this, At the time appointed, he, this is still Antiochus Epiphanes, he shall return and come into the south, but it shall not be this time as it was before. In other words, he's going to go down to the south, To the Ptolemaic dynasty, he's going to attack. It says it's not going to be as it was the time before. It's not going to work out. Verse 30, for the ships of Kittim shall come against him, and he shall be afraid and withdraw and shall turn back and be enraged and take action against the Holy Covenant. So what what we read about Antiochus Epiphany in history is that he goes to attack in the south. He's unsuccessful. He's met by a Roman general, the Roman general, four miles outside of town, meets Antiochus. History says that they, he draws a circle in the sand around Antiochus and says, before you get out of that circle, decide if you will either retreat or if you want to come again, come against the entire forces of Rome. And Antiochus retreats uh, in shame. And in shame and in humiliation, embarrassed, he goes and he turns his face, the text says, against the Holy Covenant, against God's covenant people. And it's at this point that we understand that he goes, and through the help of a wicked priest, Menelaus, 80,000 Jews are slaughtered. And it begins this great tribulation time in Jerusalem. The tribulation is described in this way, starting in verse 31. Forces from him shall appear, this is Menelaus, the wicked high priest, and profane the temple and fortress, and shall take away the regular burnt offering. We recall that he set a statue to Zeus up in the temple. And they shall set up the abomination that makes desolate. He shall seduce with flattery those who violate the covenant, but the people who know their God shall stand firm and take action. So he's going to come into Jerusalem and some of the Jews who have abandoned the Lord are going to say, let's side with this guy. He's powerful. Let's side with this guy. He can make us wealthy. Let's side with this guy. But it says that some who know the Lord will stand firm and take action. And the wise among the people shall make many understand, though for some days they shall stumble by sword and by flame. Tens of thousands will stumble by sword and by flame. Tens of thousands in history are recorded and confirmed that stumbled by sword and by flame, by captivity and by plunder. When they stumble, they shall receive a little help, and many shall join themselves to them with flattery, and some of the wise shall stumble so that they may be refined, purified, and made white until the time of the end, for it still awaits the appointed time. just amazing the clarity and the details that the Lord gives to Daniel in this vision. As Daniel is fixated on what's going on around him, the Jews, will the walls be rebuilt? Will the temple be rebuilt? Does God have any power over King Cyrus, over the Medes and the Persians? As Daniel looks at his old age and says, what can I do? God sends an angel to say, whoa, 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 Daniel, your part is small. 
my part is big. Daniel, you're fixated on what you see. God sees what you see, and God sees all that you don't see. God's, Daniel's fixated on the details. And the angel reminds Daniel that God is a God of details by giving him an extraordinary detail, essentially the events of the next 500 years, and at the end, reminding Daniel that he's the God of the big picture. Uh, that takes us to the Antichrist, who's referred to in Scripture as the man of lawlessness or the beast in Revelation 16. Uh, let's read what it says, uh, just a few verses. Verse 36 from chapter 11, speaking of the Antichrist, it says, And the king shall do as he wills. He shall exalt himself and magnify himself above every god, and he shall speak astonishing things against the god of gods. He shall prosper till the indignation is accomplished, for what is decreed shall be done. And then verse 45, the last verse of the chapter, he shall pitch his palatial tents between the sea and the glorious holy mountain, yet he shall come to his end with none to help him. Yet he shall come to his end with none to help him. Remarkably, we're going to see the Antichrist permitted to have power on this earth. Revelation 13 actually says that demons will go out and will do great signs and wonders such that the kings and the kingdoms of the earth will follow the Antichrist. Revelation 13.4 records what they'll say. It says, who is like the beast and who can fight against it? There'll be this sense that this is an indomitable, immovable force. And mankind is just better off to go along with it for who can stand against him. Who can stand against him? Some of the same things that were said in Jerusalem about Antiochus Epiphanes. And then verse 45, that he will pitch his tent in the Holy Land and his end will come and none will be available to help him. Isn't it interesting that from beginning of time to the very end, uh, Jerusalem and the Holy Land is at the center of everything? Like, is it any wonder there's constant fighting? Is it is there any wonder that for a nation that's this big on the globe, it seems to be the center of everything? We see just the bigger picture of this spiritual battle that's happening and the centrality of God's covenant people to all of these things. Chapter 11 is a reminder that God is the God of the big picture and the small details. And when this sinks in, when this saturates us, we become very interested in the relationships and the circumstances and the details of our life because we understand that God is at work in those, that they're not random, they're not accidental, they're, just, they're not just something to navigate on the path to getting where we want to go, that they're where God is at work, like he's involved all around us. Some of you like to hike and our family likes the short hikes because the kids can do those. And so if you go to Fall Creek Falls, which works for our family, and hike, it's beautiful. And nature is all around you. Friends from California said it feels like we're walking through a motivational poster. Um, and it is. It, it, it is like that. Uh, but if you were to do Fall Creek Falls with a blindfold and be led, you might do that beautiful hike and miss all of the beauty. And if you came back and someone said, how was the hike? Did, wasn't it beautiful? I didn't see anything wasn't that beautiful. What about nature? I didn't see anything. wasn't that beautiful. 
God is at work all around us. We need to take the blindfold off and pay attention. We need to take the blindfold off and pay attention in our relationships, in our circumstances. He's at work all around us. Invitations through circumstances, through job, through family, through neighborhood, through neighbors, to trust him, to take steps of faith, to engage with his work, to discover for ourselves that it truly does make more sense to orient all of our life around the Lord and his word and his work and his will. Daniel 11 tells Daniel, reminds Daniel that Daniel's part to play is small and God's part to play is big. Do you believe that that is true for your life? That by comparison to what God does, our part to play is small. I think a challenge we face is that many of us want to be the leading actor or the leading actress. And that's a recipe for a film to flop, right? If we're the leading actors and we're the leading actresses, the film is going to flop. If we will play the supporting actor or the supporting actress role that the Lord has called us to play, we will discover that his work is Oscar-worthy or Emmy-worthy, whatever the award is for movies. It's that. But many of us want to be the leading actor, the leading actress. Daniel 11 reminds Daniel that God sees what is seen and God sees all that is unseen. We're reminded of a spiritual battle. We're reminded that we need spiritual weapons to fight a spiritual battle. It's interesting, uh, here in Douglas County, we, we carry more, more weapons, more sharp things than anywhere uh, probably that I've ever lived or seen. We're ready for, we're ready for anything, right? Anything. But when it comes to spiritual weapons, isn't it true that too many of us aren't packing? Isn't it true that too many of us aren't packing when it comes to spiritual weapons? Ultimately, we see that um, the angel doesn't tell Daniel, now, now, everything's going to get better. He doesn't say, Daniel, come sit on my lap. I got a sucker for you. He doesn't say that, Daniel, you're going to get out of exile in another few months, or you're going to get a job promotion, you're going to get a clean diagnosis with your health, everything's going to go your way. He doesn't do that. He engages Daniel in the person, in the power, in the character, and the plan of God, and says, Daniel, I get what you see is discouraging, what you see can lead to despair, but back up just a second. And let me show you what God is doing over the course of history to remind you that God's kingdom is advancing, that no matter who the king is, God's on the throne, and ultimately that the battle is won. Ultimately, that the battle is won. Some of you know uh, A.B. Simpson and recognize that name when I mention it, and it's neat that he is part of our collective history uh, he was born in 1847, and some of his earliest memories are in Upper Canada, lonely on a farm, his mom crying herself to sleep after losing a child, and A.B. trying to comfort her. Some of you that have read about his life, you know that his bouts of depression didn't go away when he got out of high school. His bouts of depression didn't go away when he was a successful leader of a church. His bouts of depression didn't go away, uh, even though he saw miracle after miracle after miracle from the Lord, and so it's just beautiful to us that the Lord uses us, broken and all, to do his perfect and eternal work. That he is a master of making beautiful work out of spare parts. If you've been on the Alliance website recently, you know that there's over 2,000 Christian and Missionary Alliance churches in the 
the United States. You know that there's about half a million persons attending those churches. You know that for the last 125 years, the Christian and Missionary Alliance movement has been active overseas. More than 70 missionaries in more than 700, sorry, more than 700 missionaries in more than 70 countries. And upwards of 6 million or so followers, worshipers of Christ, linked to alliance movements in these 70 countries around the globe. This is just the pattern that we see in Scripture of God using broken men and women to do his perfect and complete life-saving, rescuing work. Um, As we wrap up Daniel 10 and 11, I think it's worth reminding ourselves, uh, we don't need to know what's next when we know who's next to us. We don't need to know uh, how the story ends for our circumstances, for some of our relationships, when we trust the one next to us is good. Uh, David said it this way in Psalm 16. He says, I have set the Lord at my right hand. I will not be shaken. He says, I have set the Lord at my right hand. I will not be shaken. I've got to imagine that with a text like this, with with Daniel 10 and 11, that many of us come in this morning feeling a bit shaken. Uh, And so if at any point in this series on Daniel, I have given you the impression that standing firm is just simply a function of more willpower, of trying harder, I apologize. That is not the point. The point is that, that God is supreme overall. We aren't. He has given us tools, but we need those spiritual tools to engage in a spiritual battle. And so my encouragement to you would be to press in to your relationships, press in to your circumstances, look for God in them rather than running from them, rather than trying to get out of them, rather than trying to make life as easy and as peaceful as possible as quickly as you humanly can, to press into those things. God is at work there, that the call to stand firm is not the call to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps to tie our shoes and white knuckle it, that the call to stand firm is to rest, to trust, to press in to the God who has power over all these things. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that that we are continually reminded of your power. Lord, we don't spend a whole lot of time looking at our circumstances or our details because at the end of the day, as we follow you, the lenses change, our spiritual eyes change so that we don't see our circumstances and then tremble and run. We see our circumstances in light of your power. We see our circumstances in light of your past faithfulness. We see our circumstances in light of all of this incredible prophecy that reminds us that nothing exists outside of your power. Nothing exists outside of your rule. Lord, and that's, that's really hard to hear sometimes. Lord, I know for many here, that's really hard to hear today. And so we would ask your spirit, Lord, to show himself to, to be near. Lord, to impress on us his power, not ours. Lord, your nearness not our strength. Lord, I pray we would sharpen our tools. I pray that we would be prepared to use them. I pray that we would be practiced, readied. Lord, that ultimately you would teach us what it means to hope in you in spite of what we see around us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.